Welcome to Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters. Kindergarten Ready is a podcast about child development in the first five years. Here, we'll try to uncover what really matters and just what it means to be Kindergarten Ready. Greetings, all. I'm Dr. Jean Ouellette, researcher, director of the Language Literacy Learning Lab at Mount Allison University, and professor of psychology. On this episode of Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters, we'll pick up where we left off last time in talking about vocabulary. In this episode, we'll focus on practical, applied strategies that we can all use to help children learn and build their vocabulary. We'll revisit the beach, but we'll also talk about other daily activities, which are wonderful opportunities for learning vocabulary. We'll even talk a little bit about storybooks, and if we have time, maybe even a little bit about the always controversial issue of screen time. Welcome, everybody. You know, I, I got to tell you right off the, the get-go here, I'm feeling good about this one. I think we're in for a, a good show. After last week, I, I struggled with some technical issues. Uh, I posted that in the show notes, uh, and, and I've learned a lot uh, in the 10 days since that, and I really feel like this has got to be a vast improvement. Now, I'm just saying that just starting to record, I obviously haven't heard any of it yet and haven't done any editing or mixing, but I'm feeling good about this one. So we're going to roll with that. I also want to thank those of you who've reached out with some feedback. I've been overwhelmed with just the positive feedback we've received. Some of you have even commented favorably on the quality of the last recording, despite my concerns. I I will say I do have a professional grade set of headphones from the lab, uh, which are incredibly sensitive. So I might be hearing some things that others are not. And look, I admit it, I have some OCD tendencies. So I've been a bit hung up on some of the mixing editing components. Uh, But I have learned quite a bit in the last 10 days. And and like I say, I'm really feeling good about the quality that we can put forth on this current episode. I also want to thank those of you who've sent really positive feedback to myself and also to Katrina via Facebook about the content. It's really been uh, humbling and heartening to know that people have enjoyed the content that we've put out so far. I look forward to continuing the discussions about child development. I do appreciate you sharing this show with friends, neighbors, family, strangers whoever, help us spread the word. And one of the best ways we can increase our audience is to feature more prominently in the search engines within the Apple podcast system. My understanding of that algorithm is that to feature more prominently, a podcast needs to have a certain number of five-star reviews. We would really appreciate it if you could take the time and leave us a five-star review. Now, if you have some constructive criticism you'd like to offer, I'd really appreciate if you could send that in a direct message. I think it's really important for the Apple algorithms that the reviews posted are positive in order to feature more prominently in their searches. So again, I really appreciate any help you can give us in helping spread the word about this podcast. Today, you know, we're going to talk about vocabulary again. Now, last time we talked more technically about the definition, we dealt with the question, What is it? And then after defining the construct, I think in you know, a fair amount of depth, we talked about its relevance. We asked the question, Why does it matter? And then having established the relevance, I then began to talk about ways we can stimulate vocabulary development in children. And we ran out of time. So that's where we're going to pick it up. Today's show, we're going to keep on the surface and really just think about the practical strategies we can use to help children. So just to have a super brief recap, vocabulary. Well, remember, we're talking about the words we know more specifically to the stored information in the brain about sound and meaning. 
We know that kids are great at storing this information. If you recall the idea of quick incidental learning or fast mapping, that children can store new words after only a few exposures. But we also know that this learning can be incremental. That is, it may only be partial. So we need plenty of repetition and at multiple exposures to a word for full learning to occur. We also know that words need to be organized within our lexicon. That's our internal dictionary in our brain. And that way, just like books are organized in the library, if our words are organized within our own dictionary, it makes it more easy and more efficient to access them in processing and producing language. Word associations, categorizations, noun-verb connections, object functions, parts and wholes, and descriptive language all help with that organization. And we know about the relevance. Well, we know Vocabulary is super relevant because it's at the heart of communication. It's at the heart of language development. It's also highly linked to measures of intelligence. It's also highly linked to academic success and specifically learning to read. So let's get to the applied part. Let's ask the question. What should we do about it? Well, let's start off. Let's go back to that beach. If you recall, we were talking about the family, uh, the child, pre-verbal Preverbal in the sense of not speaking in legible words, but but making lots of babbling noise, being super excited about the environment, highly captivated, highly engaged, showing a really strong emotional reaction, all part of the formula for learning. But what was missing? The language. And in that particular case, the vocabulary. It's actually pretty straightforward. We need to hear words in order to proceed with language development. We don't come preloaded with the vocabulary. We have to be exposed to language. And the best way to learn language is to hear the words that match what we are experiencing in our environment. I mentioned at the end of the last episode that there are two specific techniques we can use to help children learn vocabulary. And I got to tell you right now, on the surface, these techniques are super easy, or they sound super easy. They're actually incredibly difficult to do. Well, wait a minute. I just said they were super easy. They're super easy to understand. They're very difficult to implement. Back in my speech language pathology days, I used to tell clients, that I could explain these two techniques. Two techniques, not just for vocabulary, but two techniques that are beneficial for speech and language development overall, that I could explain these two techniques in 60 seconds or less. That's both techniques combined. They're that simple to understand. Okay, ready? Start your timers. 60 seconds or less, I'll explain two of the most powerful techniques in stimulating language development. Ready? Go. These two techniques are referred to as self-talk and parallel talk. Self-talk just means that you're talking about what you're doing yourself. You kind of narrate what you're doing, your own actions. Basically, no matter how mundane or uninteresting you might think what you're doing is, you can provide the language that matches. Look, I'm pouring juice. I'm putting on my shoes. It's that sort of thing. You're your own personal narrator. Parallel talk means that you're talking in parallel with what the child is observing. You're like a personal narrator for the child's world. I always think of of the Will Ferrell movie, Stranger Than Fiction. I'm actually not a Will Ferrell fan. Sorry, Will, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are. But Stranger Than Fiction is actually a really good movie. If, If you don't know that movie, his character hears narration of his life, and it turns out his life is actually being written by a novelist. So whatever he does, he hears the narrator. Well, parallel talk is that sort of idea. You provide the language that matches the child's environment. You're talking in parallel to what the child is experiencing. Okay, stop the timer. I think that's 60 seconds or less. And that's even with a Will Ferrell reference in there. Simple, right? Self-talk, you talk about what you're doing. Parallel talk, you talk in parallel with whatever the child is focused on. I don't know how else to explain it. It's a pretty simple explanation. They're, They're not overly complicated techniques. But why is something so simple so hard to do? And I'm I'm telling you right now, it is hard to do. 
I've worked with clients where I have these discussions. I would define the terms. I'd model how to do it and then give them the opportunity and they wouldn't do it. I would talk to friends, family, people I know who have small children and explain these techniques and then observe them not doing these techniques. And it's not just because they were ignoring me. I don't think they were ignoring me. No, surely they weren't ignoring me. They weren't doing them because they're actually really, really hard to do. And there's a reason for that, actually. And the reason is called pragmatics. Language is made up of modules or rule-based systems. For example, uh, last time I mentioned in defining vocabulary, we can link meaning with sound. That sound is called phonology. Phonology refers to our speech sounds. In the study of language, phonology can be defined as a rule-based system. Rules that have to define what sounds are speech sounds. We have a s, a p, a t, a d, f. All those are speech sounds. Those are phonemes of the English language. But if I make a glottal sound deep in my throat, that's not a speech sound. There are rules about which sounds are speech and which ones are not. There's also rules about how we can combine speech sounds. We can't start a word in English, for example, with a B sound followed by a P sound. The reason why is those sounds are called stop consonants. They're stop consonants, meaning that they actually stop the flow of air when we produce them. If you say now a word that starts with B, let's say Bob, and you freeze while you're making the B while your lips are closed, so say Bob, but just freeze, you'll find out that you're holding your breath because in producing that B sound, you're stopping the flow of air. Well, there's actually a rule in phonology that says you can't have two stop consonants together to start a word. That's a rule. So phonology is a rule-based system. And I only offer that as an example here, what I mean by rule-based system. I had mentioned that it's difficult to implement self and parallel talk strategies because of a rule-based system called pragmatics. Pragmatics dictate the rules of how we use language. Some of it's social conventions. If you've worked with small children, you have probably have to tell them a lot. Only one person talks at a time. Well, that's a pragmatic rule. Another pragmatic rule is that language involves turn-taking. One person talks and then someone else talks. There's also rules about topic maintenance, how to initiate a conversation, how to close a conversation, etc. These are all pragmatic rules. And there are no pragmatic rules that say you should go around talking out loud about what you are doing or describing what other people are doing. One way we actually validate rules in social research is we violate them and then we observe people's reactions. If you violate a presumed rule and people react strangely to you, then that's seen as a way to validate the rule. The fact that people respond to you strangely when you violate the rule implies that they understand that a rule has been violated. So try it. Next time you're around adults, colleagues, friends, family, just start talking about what you're doing. Oh, hey, I'm putting on my jacket. I'm putting on my shoes. I'm opening the door. I'm going out the door. Or start talking about what they're observing. Start using parallel talk. Oh, I see you're sitting down. You're picking up your glass. You're scratching your head. Look at that. You see the dog. They're going to think there's something wrong with you. And, and, you know, frankly, there could be something wrong with you because you're violating a pragmatic rule. So self and parallel talk are hard to do because they violate a rule of pragmatics. And that is that that's not how we use language. There's also something else that is a, a major impediment to using self and parallel talk, which relates to pragmatics. And that is how do we open up a language interaction with another individual? There's different strategies. You could just say hi. And then the other person, because it's turn-taking, would say hi, but that's not much of an interaction. So what do we do? What is the default strategy in pragmatics to start an interaction? You encounter someone, you want a verbal interaction, what do you do? Think about it. What do you think you do? We tend to ask questions. If you ask a question, then the pragmatic rule is that someone will respond to that question. Think about it. You meet someone on the street, you say, hey, how are you? That initiates an interaction. If you know them better, maybe it's more personalized. Hey, 
How'd that go last night? Hey, did you see that post on Facebook? So you ask a question because that then shifts the turn taking to the next person and initiates a back and forth interaction. That is a default strategy. And it's such an ingrained default strategy that we use it when we encounter children, even if they're pre-verbal. What do we do when we encounter kids? We bombard them with questions. And if you don't believe me, this is actually something worth trying to become more aware of. It's actually really hard to to develop self-awareness in our use of language. So start with a little social experimentation and start watching people when they're interacting with children. If you have your own children, watch other people when they come over and interact with them. Watch your partner. Watch other family members. Watch strangers in the supermarket. And then progress to trying to observe yourself. If you're brave, videotape yourself interacting with your child. And then go back and watch the tape and count how many times you ask a question. This pragmatic default strategy is so ingrained, we actually ask questions that violate logic because we ask questions that we know the answer to. Think about a child playing with the truck and you see the child, what do you do? You probably say, hey, what do you got there? Right? Or maybe you say, hey, you got a truck? Hey, are you playing with your truck? You're asking questions that you know the answer to. You can see them. I often thought it would make a funny video if we could do voiceovers of children responding to adults asking them questions, which are so obvious. Hey, what do you got there? And the baby would say, uh, what's it look like? It's my truck. At least, at least I think that'd be funny. So if you think about it, asking kids questions, especially if they're pre-verbal, and even if they're verbal, they're probably not going to initiate a, a real in-depth conversation with you. You're asking a question that maybe the child's not capable of responding to, A, and B, you already know the answer to. It defies logic to keep asking these questions. Why do we do it? Because it's a really strongly ingrained pragmatic default strategy for verbal interactions. One of the hurdles to overcome in order to use self and parallel talk is you need to suppress the urge to ask questions. The number one recommendation we often give to parents is really to try to increase their awareness of how often they ask questions. I mean, some questions are okay, don't get me wrong, but we don't want to bombard kids with questions when we can bombard them with language content, and that can be done through self and parallel talk. There's one more thing I should mention before we listen to some examples of self and parallel talk. There is something that happens quite naturally when we talk to small children and babies in particular. This is a universal phenomenon, cross-cultural. What happens? We suddenly change the rate at which we talk. We slow down. And we don't slow down by stopping between words, because that would be annoying, right? We slow down by stretching our vowels. We'll also increase our intonation and the variations in intonation. We'll talk up and we'll talk down. We'll talk slow and we'll say the same word over and over again. Oh, look at the baby. Hi, baby. Oh, you got a truck? Oh, that's a nice truck. We don't talk like that to adults. Again, try it. People are going to think there's a little something wrong with you. But we do talk like that to babies. And nobody taught us to do that. It comes quite naturally. And again, there's been research that has shown this is cross-cultural. This is a universal worldwide phenomenon. When people encounter small children, especially babies, they change the way they use their language. This used to be referred to as motherese in the literature. People got a little uncomfortable with the gendered term. So then it was switched to parentese. That really didn't catch on. So now the accepted terminology is CDS or child-directed speech. And that just refers to the way that we change the way we deliver our speech when we talk to babies. And here's the thing. It's actually a good thing. The very reason it seems so natural and cross-cultural is that it's providing a really valuable purpose. By slowing down, by increasing our intonation, by repeating the same words over and over again, guess what we're helping children do? Learn vocabulary. 
It's also related to other areas of speech and language development, such as specific phonological or speech sound development, and also some aspects of morphology or grammar. I know sometimes I hear people say, you know, if I have a baby one day, I'm not going to talk to it like that. That's silly. I'm going to talk to it in adult language. Well, again, this isn't what Jean thinks. This is empirically supported practice. Child-directed speech is beneficial to children. Now, we should say what we're doing is altering the phonology and we're altering the content for repetition and perhaps even the structure to make our sentences more simple. But one thing we don't do is distort or deviate from the grammatical rules of a language, right? So some people confuse child-directed speech with baby talk, and they say, I'm not going to use baby talk. And you know what? You shouldn't use baby talk, because baby talk would have deviations in, in morphology, grammar, and proper word use. So we don't say, you know, you want banana. There's no Tarzan talk or cookie monster speech. We still use intact phrases. We still use proper grammar. Just to recap, self-talk, talking about things you're doing yourself, your own personal narrator. Parallel talk, you're talking in parallel with what the child is experiencing, and we implement child-directed speech while we do that. And we know, despite how simple that may sound, it's actually really difficult to do, and there's a reason. It's because it violates rules of pragmatics. But we can overcome this hurdle by becoming more aware of our own language and with practice. And it does take practice. So let's get back to that beach, that lovely day in May. Let's think about how that mother or father could have provided parallel talk to support their child's language development. Today, playing the role of that mother on the beach is my lovely wife, Katrina. I saw the bird. That's a big white bird. A big white bird. Look at his long, skinny legs. Oh, he's got skinny legs. Look at his legs. That's a big white bird. That's called a crane. Yeah, that's the crane. Oh, look, look at the little bird. It's a little bird. That's a plover. That's a little bird. That's a plover. He's a little bird. That's a little bird. Oh, look, it's a pelican. A pelican. That's a big bird. The big pelican is in the water. Oh, I think he has some food. He's got some food in his bill. He carries it in his mouth. Mummy carries you, but the pelican carries fish. Wow, a really great use of child-directed speech. Lots of repetitions. We hear the category of birds and the subordinate items of the different types of birds. Do you think we can add some part-to-hold type relationships and talk about parts of birds? The plover has little tiny legs. The plover has three toes. You have five. Oh, I see the stork's feet. She has a yellow bill and yellow feet. Her bill and feet match. They're yellow. Oh, look at this bird. Look at the big heron. Look at the heron. Look at his long, long bill. He's got a long beak. He's got a long bill. And tall, skinny legs and big feet. Okay, great. Now how about some verbs? How about some action words to go along with the nouns? There's the little bird. That's the plover. Look at him scurrying. He's scurrying with his little legs. Running, running, running. Scurry, scurry, scurry. Scurry, little plover. Oh, the pelican is swooping. 
He's swooping into the water. Did you see him swooping? Into the water he goes. He's got some fish. He's fishing. He's fishing and swooping. Daddy doesn't fish very well. He's not as smart as a pelican. What? Hold on. What's that now? I think I call offside on that one. I'm pretty sure that's not a textbook example of parallel talk to put in an insult about a pelican being smarter than the father. So strike that last comment. But other than that, I think that was a pretty fine example of child-directed speech being used within the technique of parallel talk. The thing with child-directed speech is that if you haven't done it before, it's pretty well guaranteed to make you self-conscious. Actually, when Katrina recorded that and listened back to it, she said, you know, we probably shouldn't use that. I sound kind of stupid. Well, you know what? You do sound a little bit stupid. Ah, That's just to get back at you for that pelican comment. No, you do sound a little strange because why? You're violating some pragmatic rules and you're not talking in the same manner that we talk to adults. But again, remember, this is an empirically supported practice. It works. Now, I should also add, you might be thinking, well, come on, I can't always take my kid to the beach as much as I might like to. Certainly, that's understandable. But the thing to remember is that these techniques can be used in any daily activities. Think about the times for language stimulation. Having a bath. Lots of times to talk about body parts, some descriptive language about the temperature of the water, what the bubbles look like and feel like. And you know what? Getting dressed. Getting dressed. You can use body parts and parts of clothing. And maybe even getting dressed. I don't know. Let's say to go to the park. Let's get ready. Let's get ready and go to the park. Let's get ready. First, we have to put on your shirt. Let's put on your shirt. Hands up. Way up. Putting on your shirt. Mummy is putting on your shirt. It's a pretty shirt. Look at the little puppies on your shirt. One, two, three puppies. Three puppies on your shirt. Now let's put on your pants. Pulling up your pants. Pulling up your pants. Here we go. You're putting on your pants. Let's put on our socks. One sock. Two socks. Two socks. Two socks for you. Let's put those socks inside your shoes. Let's wear your running shoes. Let's wear your running shoes to the park. One foot. Two feet. Two feet. Two feet in shoes. All set to go to the park. Let's go. Oh, let's not forget our hat. Now we're all ready for the park. Let's go get the stroller. Let's go to the park. Thank you again to Katrina for her starring role as a mother preparing a child to go outside. Self-talk and parallel talk, like I said, are well-studied. They're really powerful ways to help with vocabulary, as well as with speech production and, and the grammar or morphology of a language. But they're not the only ways. So I thought before we go today, I would just touch upon two particular issues, storybooks and the use of technology or screen time. These are both topics that, that we're going to do complete episodes on. We might do, I'm actually, I'm pretty sure we'll do more than one episode on these topics because they are such huge topics in the field of child development. So I'm not going to go into detail about the research in these areas on this episode. I wanted to keep this episode 
on the surface more in terms of practical suggestions and applications of the research and theory that were introduced last episode. We will do other episodes on these topics where I'll really do deep dives into some of the research because it's fascinating, actually, on storybooks and on screen time. But for today, I just wanted to stay on the surface and talk about practical applications. Storybooks are wonderful opportunities to expose children to vocabulary. We've all likely seen posters or public service announcements or what have you encouraging us to read to our children. That message has been out there for decades now. Read to your kids, read to your kids, read to your kids. Storybooks are wonderful opportunities to expose children to language. We won't get into that on this episode, but there's a really fascinating body of research into storybook reading that has shown that storybooks actually don't magically make kids literate, but what reading to children does do is expose them to language. And there's two particular areas in language that children are exposed to. One has to do with phonology, again, the sound structure of language, and the other has to do with vocabulary. If you think about the types of books we read to small children, I see them as falling into three categories. One are the books that are focused more on sound structure rather than a narrative or vocabulary per se. Alphabet books, Dr. Seuss comes to mind. Uh, Dr. Seuss books, you're likely not going to learn vocabulary from, you know, other than like Constantinople or, or green eggs and ham. But what you do get exposed to, I guess cat in the hat, there is some vocabulary, but what you do get exposed to is a wonderful use of phonology, speech sounds. You hear rhyme and alliteration and you hear it over and over again. Rhyme and alliteration have been highly studied with respect to how children learn how to read. Those are really important auditory skills that link into something called phonological awareness, which is an awareness of the sound structure of language and something, again, we'll devote an entire episode to that at another time. Then we can also think of another category of books, ones that are more narrative-based, that have characters and a plot and have more use of language. Those are the books that are more beneficial for things like vocabulary. These are the most common types of books that people tend to read to their children. One of the findings from the literature on storybook reading and vocabulary learning has been the importance of repeated readings. Don't think of a storybook as a one-and-done sort of thing. And actually, children like repetition. Research has shown that reading the same book three to five times within one week can actually be beneficial. Think again of fast mapping or quick incidental learning and the fact that learning language is incremental or partial. So it reasons that to have multiple exposures within a relatively short period of time, say a week, could be beneficial. Children like repetition, so don't be afraid to roll out the same storybook over and over and over again to expose that child to repetitions of that language. There's countless authors and sources of children's literature. We're really big fans of Kevin Hankey and his family. If you're not familiar with Kevin Hankey, he's an author of children's books uh, featuring rodents. Uh, They're wonderful on, on many fronts. They have a rich use of language, wonderful vocabulary. He uses synonyms really well. So he'll use a term like pretty, and then the next sentence might say beautiful. So the child's exposed to different words that mean the same thing. His characters are also endearing. And actually, the storybooks for older children have really meaningful lessons embedded in them as well. The third category would be more towards a chapter kind of book. And you think, well, I'm not going to read a chapter book to a baby. Well, probably not. But once a child is, let's say, over two and is starting to develop language, it's not a bad idea. Even if they're not fully focused, they might be falling asleep, it's not a bad practice to read more elaborate text. If you think about the other two categories of books, sound structure books tend to be very simplistic, but they're giving wonderful stimulation for phonology. Children's literature in terms of picture books have very simplistic narratives, but you're learning some wonderful vocabulary, hopefully, 
So now the next level of complexity would be more of a chapter type of book where the story takes place over many more pages, takes much more time. It's a much more in-depth processing. And again, even if the child isn't fully processing all of it, it's not a terrible thing to expose children to. In our household, I actually read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to our daughter when she was probably three or four. And then when she was just a few years older than that and began reading herself, it's a book she would pick to go back to herself. I would think even to this day, if we were to ask her, I think she would say that she's a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The short version of this message is that storybooks are great. Try to throw in a little variety. Sound structure books, picture books with simple narratives for children, as well as more sophisticated chapter type books. Okay, one last topic. Let's just talk a little bit about screen time. I even hesitate to bring this up because it's such a controversial issue, and it's something that it seems everybody has an opinion on. We're going to deal with screen time in another episode where we can really do a deep dive into the research. The research in screen time is not as clear cut as, as many people think, so it's really a, a, an area that's worth spending some time on. I'm not going to talk about whether or not you should allow your children to have screen time or how much screen time. We'll save all that for another show. I just wanted to mention technology and screen time. And and actually, screens can include TV. I just wanted to mention how that impacts vocabulary learning. There has been some research specifically looking at vocabulary learning from educational TV, for example. And that research is pretty consistent in showing that there may be some learning, but it's minimal. And it's not to the same extent as when you have an interaction with another person. There does appear to be something special about human interaction when it comes to learning language. Even the most educational TV won't be as effective as face-to-face human interaction when it comes to vocabulary. As far as educational apps or video games, it's got to really vary with the level of engagement and exactly what's happening on that screen. There certainly has been research on programs like Baby Einstein, for example, that have clearly shown those type of programs do not teach vocabulary well. And again, I'm speaking just of vocabulary. I'm not saying that it's an evil thing if you're letting your child have screen time. I'm just saying it's not necessarily going to be the best thing for vocabulary, even if it's a highly educational content-based app or activity where you think there's exposure to vocabulary. There's something about that human interaction which takes learning to a new level. And I think one of the most problematic issues with screen time is it takes away for the opportunity for that face-to-face interaction. Uh, I think of the grocery store, right? It's not uncommon to see people with children in a grocery store, and that's when they may give them a screen. And I understand, look, you want to focus on getting the groceries done, and this occupies the child. In that sense, you're not doing it as a learning opportunity. You're just doing it to let you get something else done, and that's perfectly understandable. But on the other hand, I can't help but think about if it's taking away the opportunity for language stimulation. Grocery stores are actually full of vocabulary, and the way they're organized is actually by categories, fruits and vegetables. Think of all the fruits and vegetables you could name, just going through that first section of the grocery store. And then the baked goods, and then the meats along the back, the dairy section. A grocery store is full of thousands of things. Things can be vocabulary items. So shopping for groceries is actually a phenomenal time to provide self-in-parallel talk. The moral of the story is talk to your kids. Talk to your kids. Don't be afraid to use child-directed speech. Don't be afraid to be repetitive. Don't be afraid to use self-in-parallel talk. And try to just become aware of how many times we ask questions and try to reduce that. We can also engage children in other activities like storybook reading. And just be aware that our screen time isn't taking away too much from other language learning opportunities. By implementing these simple strategies, we can help children on the road to learning vocabulary. 
And this doesn't just go for that pre-verbal child on the beach. This goes from infancy, as in day-old infant, all the way through to the preschool years. Vocabulary truly is one of the most important areas of child development. It is something that really matters. If you're hearing my voice now, that means you've made it to the end of the show. And for that, I thank you. I hope you'll join us again next time when we'll explore another issue in child development and consider once again what really matters and just what it means to be kindergarten ready. You've been listening to Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters, a podcast about child development in the first five years. Kindergarten Ready is a production of the Language Literacy Learning Lab. For more information about the show, check us out at www.kindergartenreadywhatreallymatters.com. Kindergarten Ready!